You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week on America's Web Radio. Thanks once again for being with us. We're going to continue uh, our series of uh, reporting our guest interviews from our DPC 3.0 meeting in Orlando, Florida last November. But decided this week to take a little bit of a different tack with it because I was getting a little tired of just hitting the record and the play buttons here and just basically copying the interviews onto the show. Uh, so I thought I'd do a little bit of host conversation here and spend the first segment talking about some stuff uh, like we usually do and uh, maybe try on for size some new ideas for uh, segments within the show, sort of regular things like, like a lot of other talk show hosts do, uh, you know, do the opening monologue or maybe do a little bit of presentation like a, like a book club kind of thing. Uh, so I'm going to try a few things uh, in this first segment before we go on to our guest interviews, which will be uh, Chad Savage and uh, Josh Umber, two names that uh, if you're regular listeners, you know well. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about some stuff that's in the news. We haven't done that in a while and sort of bring some perspective and try to tie healthcare into some things you might not think about uh, healthcare being a part of. But uh, I want to talk about this thing that's in the news now uh, about these uh, Boeing 737s, right? The 737 is probably the most respected uh, commercial aircraft in the history of aviation. It's been around for uh, basically 50 years uh, and has been improved and upgraded since it was introduced in the 60s. Uh, one of the best safety records of all aircraft that have ever been produced. But as I'm sure you know, uh, this week uh, the safety of the aircraft has been brought into question because of two recent accidents uh, involving the 737. And just a few hours ago uh, on uh, Wednesday, uh, the president and the FAA uh, made America, the United States, the last country to ground uh, the latest version of the 737, the 737 MAX 8 and MAX 9. So what's the problem? Um, you, you have probably heard this in the news. It has to do with some of the automated systems on board the aircraft that uh, protect the aircraft from crashing due to pilot error, and it turns out that these automated systems may actually be causing um, crashes. And you say, well, why are we talking about that on a healthcare policy radio show? Well, you know I talk about health information technology a lot, and listening to this um, this uh, problem made me think about a, a book that we reviewed here on the show years ago by a Dr. Robert Wachter uh, called The Digital Doctor, uh, and it's all the problems that the information age has brought to medicine. And one of the chapters in the book does a very effective job of comparing automation in aircraft and warning systems in aircraft uh, versus warning systems and automation in electronic medical record systems. 
and says quite appropriately that the systems and the aircraft are designed much better. Um, that they they and they're designed better because pilots were involved with every stage of creating these automated systems and warning systems, so that they actually help pilots do their job rather than get in the way. And of course, the contrast is drawn with electronic medical records. Doctors, by and large, weren't involved, and all of the warning systems and pop-up boxes and all of the things that we've all collectively learned to ignore in our EMRs um, get in the way of us doing our job rather than. Uh, uh, than, than to actually help us do our job. And yet there were some observations in Dr. Walker's book that created some little bit of doubt about the aircraft side of the automation and warning equation, um, saying that uh, you know, in the old days of aircraft, when nothing was automated, the flight crews, the, um, the pilots and the navigators and the co-pilots were always intensively communicating with each other all the time. They made a very cut, tight, cohesive team because they were constantly communicating and problem solving because there were no automated systems doing that for them. And so when a crisis came up or a very significant threatening problem came up, that crew was already well-practiced in communicating with each other, solving problems, simple problems together. And so when the big stuff came up, they were well a well-oiled uh, interpersonal machine. And Walker makes the comment in the book that the automated systems in the aircraft, although far better designed than the automation and warning systems and electronic medical records, that it did significantly decrease that communication so that at an interpersonal level, the members of the flight crew didn't know each other as well. And the question is, would that cause a problem when a crisis came up and they didn't know how to work together side by side? So, you know, now are we moving into an even more concerning phase of automation and warning systems and air travel that makes them more similar to EMRs and therefore quite possibly more dangerous, uh, which is that, you know, we now have this automated system called a, you know, it's an anti-stall system, right? It keeps an aircraft from climbing too fast and losing airspeed, and then the wings stop lifting the airplane up and the airplane crashes. So they have this thing called an angle of attack sensor, which is how steeply the wing is angled relative to the direction of travel. And if that angle of attack gets too high, you can stall. Uh, without getting too technical, but now that automation system not only wasn't working, but the methods of uh, intervention and overriding that systems were not uh, communicated to pilots well. So not only do we have a situation where the automation is getting worse, but um, that the ability to override the automation is getting worse. And, and, you know, the question I had is, are we reaching a cultural situation with pilots and uh, flight engineers, the people who design these things, uh, where they're not communicating the same way that uh, vendors that build EMRs don't really care what doctors think. It's been that way since the beginning in healthcare. Is it becoming that way in uh, in aviation where now the people who design these systems just say, look, they're going to work, they're going to do their thing, the pilots don't need to know, this is going to operate in the background, and the pilots don't need to concern themselves with that. Now, I know a few pilots, and I don't think any of them would receive that kind of a philosophy very well. So the question is, what's going to happen? Well, this will get solved pretty quickly because there's a huge difference between aviation and medicine, and that is when there is a, a failure in medicine, a large number of lives are lost tragically very quickly. It makes the headlines, you know, safety of air travel is much more in your face 
than safety in medicine where millions of people are taken care of and, and, and tragedies occur one patient at a time uh, rather than, you know, two, three hundred people all at once. So this will get solved, um, but it's still it, it, it's a good opportunity to highlight that you know technology is not all it's cracked up to be, uh, and that uh, you know and I'm a huge supporter of technology and information technology as you know, but it has to be used safely and it has to be used correctly. We've been preaching this in medicine for the past almost five years that this show has been on the air. And so when we see similar issues pop up in other places where it's far easier to understand, I felt like it was appropriate to uh, to bring that up and ask the question, you know, are, are aircraft getting so fancy that they're actually becoming harder and more dangerous to fly uh, than systems that are not quite as sophisticated? We don't really need to save pilots from themselves. Uh, and, you know, pilots are well-trained, and, and I would much rather have a well-trained professional human being at the controls of the aircraft I'm flying than a completely automated system uh, that is not easily overrode uh, and which no matter how sophisticated the software cannot possibly contemplate the millions of different combinations of environmental inputs that lead to second-by-second decision-making. We've seen it in medicine for years. Is this the beginning of seeing this in aviation. Okay, so next topic I want to hit um, is to go to a completely different subject, which is something we've also talked about on the air quite a bit, which is pharmacy benefit managers, uh, the uh, the evil that they uh, add to the healthcare system by uh, you know soaking huge amounts of money out of the system to the tune of three hundred billion dollars a year, uh, and create a situation where your insurance copay is higher than the cash price for a drug in many instances. Uh, they soak all this money out of the system and provide nothing of value. Uh, and we've also been very complimentary of the current administration for recognizing that fact with pharmacy benefit managers and, and you know, having directives come out of the White House uh, for Congress and HHS to uh, work to uh, reduce this uh, expense related to pharmacy benefit managers. And, uh, you know, we've advocated that they just need to go away or at least the rebates need to go away. So although some people – and some people that I'm very close to have applauded this recent tweet by HHS Secretary Alice Azar today, and I'll just quote this. I'm just going to read it out loud. We applaud OptumRx and United Healthcare for announcing that in 2020, all new employer-sponsored plans must turn drug company rebates into point-of-sale discounts for patients. A major step towards more transparency and savings for patients, and call on others to do the same. Eh, you know what? Some people that I'm close to that you've heard on this show before have supported that tweet and said it was a great thing. Um, I'm not so impressed. Um, I think that this is uh, this is a way of, uh, of of doing the job halfway and gives the pharmacy benefit managers a way out and a way to continue to exist and still have rebates. Um, my reply uh, on Twitter was, "Why bother doing?" That why do this halfway? Make a clean break and make the rebates illegal. Period. Right before rebates, this was not a problem. I don't understand, and maybe I'm quite probably I'm not smart enough to to understand the sophistication behind this. But assuming for the moment that there's nothing there to know that I don't know, why would you why would you keep the rebates at all? Why not just 
make a clean break and stop this madness and uh, and 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 let's let's move to something that's a little bit more free market rather than having all this sort of thing because they'll figure out a way you know the PBMs will figure out a way uh, you know under this sort of pledge to make it work and continue to uh, to to take money under the table you know it's going to happen uh, why we're giving them any wiggle room to continue to have rebates is beyond me why we're giving them the wiggle room to continue to exist is beyond me but story for another day so we've got about a minute and a half left in the segment. I created a whole bunch of notes that I could probably run through the rest of this segment and all of another segment, but I want to save three segments to play back uh, Dr. Savage and Dr. Umber's uh, interviews. So I'm just going to give you a preview. We'll do this in a couple of weeks. Um, I read a review of a review. So this is a little bit kooky, but it's it's a book called Can Medicine Be Cured? The Corruption of Medicine. Very interesting review, at least, and I'm going to read the book. I didn't have a chance to do that before the show tonight but or today, this morning. Uh, but uh, this is an interesting book that gives an interesting historical perspective. i got about 45 seconds left in the segment. Uh, it talks about the golden age of medicine, and this is the 20th century from the 1940s to the 1970s. And then laments that, you know, once that golden age of medicine was done, that you know, the, the contributions of laboratory science to medicine, uh, this office has came to a halt. I think that's a bit strong language, but that, that since the 70s, since that golden age, you know, of, of lots of advancements, lots of contributions, much improved outcomes over the 20th century, that that has kind of leveled off for a variety of reasons. Uh, and we'll go into that uh, in two weeks when it's my turn again. Um, next, we'll be uh, having the interviews with uh, Savage and Umber. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200, or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome. 
Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge, sponsored by the Doctor Patient Care Foundation. You're hearing a lot of crowd noise in the background, a lot more than usual, and that's because we have taken our act on the road. Uh, we are in the Doctor's Lounge in Orlando, Florida, at the Doctor Patient Care Foundation's largest event of the year, which is called DPC 3.0, Direct Primary Care 3.0. Why 3? Because it's our third year. Uh, we are delighted to be here, and the audience and the interest and the energy is growing by leaps and bounds every year. And for this year, for the first time, we've taken the entire Doctor Patient Care Foundation studio from Atlanta to Orlando. So we are here interviewing guests. We are interviewing speakers. And I am delighted to have uh, one of our speakers from the morning, Dr. Chad Savage. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, he's going to give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what he talked about a little bit this morning. And then uh, I'm just going to let him have the microphone and uh, tell us whatever uh, he thinks we need to hear. So, you know, I caught about 30 seconds of what you were yeah. talking about this morning because I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off. But we were talking a little bit about how... Uh, the insurance concept, the third-party payer concept, um, artificially raises prices and starts an ugly, vicious cycle in the cost of care. So tell us your thoughts on that. Sure. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, my, com- my discussion was mainly about how medical care is vastly overpriced from top to bottom. We have uh, Keith Smith coming in later who's going to talk about surgeries and how they're vastly overpriced. Uh, I was talking about primary care and imaging and labs and, and other aspects and everything. Basically, top to bottom, the false the, they are totally falsely priced. And why this is significant, it's not only significant because, sadly, a lot of people end up paying those ridiculous false prices, mainly if they have high deductibles, and why it's important to help those patients to afford their medical care but how this is also used, these false prices are actually used to justify intrusion into the practice of medicine. And by that I mean, you, if the, you know, the insurance companies and the government and other entities uh, that are outside of medicine come into the medical practice saying, hey, your prices are too high, you need us to fix them for you. But then they add in middlemen and start putting stipulations on payment and actually coercing the care. Uh, all with the false pretense that they're going to fix prices, and they never do. Prices every year go up and up and up, and we've actually lost control of our profession because of it. And so we as doctors need to get together, and we need to start working in a coherent effort to try to correct the prices, and by doing so, we will likely save our profession. Uh, And we need to destroy the big myth that says that when you have a third party negotiating for you, that allegedly allegedly represents a whole bunch of patients that somehow this purchasing power brings down prices rather than brings them up. And intuitively, it kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, if you don't know better, it kind of makes sense that if you have a bunch of buyers, patients, that you can negotiate for lower prices. But in fact, the opposite happens, right, because of the decoupling of yep. who receives the service versus who pays for it. Yep, and there's an interesting, this is in the weeds, but in ACA Obamacare, there's an interesting uh, feature that's called the medical loss ratio that says that insurance companies can only keep 20% of a premium for their administrative costs for themselves. Um, but people don't understand that this creates a very bizarre incentive for the insurance company. Yes, it does. So on one side, the insurance companies say, you know, we're going to save money because they have to say that for political expediency. But on the other side, they recognize that if medical costs actually go down, they're collecting 20% of a smaller number, and it hurts them. So they actually have the bizarre incentive of keeping prices high. Correct. Uh, you know, and so it, the only way that they can grow their profits 
is to make that 20% of a bigger number. Yep. And, and they so. also started to, to go out beyond the 20%. You say, how can an insurance company, when you have a law that says only 20% can be retained for the insurance company, go into that 80% that's supposed to be medical care? Well, you have insurance companies now claiming they are practicing medical care. And so if any of your listeners have ever been in a hospital or discharged, shortly after discharge, they can get a call from a nurse who works for their insurance company. Well, their insurance company now can say, oh, well, you know, we had a nurse, a medical licensed nurse, a medical provider, call that patient. So we can collect more than 20% because that phone call was clearly worth $200. I'm making up that number. Right, but some number. Yeah, so they now start uh, delving into realms beyond classic the financial tool of what insurance is supposed to be and, and are able to justify that and are, in fact, incentivized to start essentially claiming that they're practicing medicine. Exactly. And and so it, it ends up being the same thing that we see in every corner of regulated health care, which is that the, the more complicated you make the regulations, the more incentive there is to game the system and come up with these crazy ways to make money that do nothing for the quality of care, nothing for the patient but pad the pockets of the people who never touch patients. Yeah, it was interesting. At the end of the the discussion, we had a, a person who came up and said, where do you see direct primary care in 10 years, and what is one of the biggest threats to it? And actually, it's regulation. If any new entity, the instinctive, ref- reflexive response by the government is, there's something new here, we need to regulate it. But is that actually true? Because the concept of that is to, to prevent patients from being ripped off financially, being subject to scams, and also to ensure safety. But irregardless of any new regulations specific to direct primary care, we already have OSHA to help with um, you know safety issues. We already have licensing boards to ensure that we are practicing good quality medicine. And we already have contract law to make sure that people aren't being ripped off. So in fact, I would argue that no new regulation needs to be done of this industry beyond what already exists. What's your opinion, uh, Chad, about the bill that passed the House that's before the Senate that talks about using HSA funding? Uh, You know, the good news is they're contemplating putting HSA funding in. The bad news is they are following their instincts to regulate (laughs) with no intelligent reason to do so. So Yeah, it was so promising. It was so promising. So, yes, the concept of the HSA being used for direct primary care is just – makes sense. I mean, we you can use an HSA for dental care, you can use it for your eyeglasses, but somehow you can't use it for your primary care doctor who just chooses to bill in a slightly atypical fashion. That makes no sense to me. So it makes great sense that they would make that uh, applicable to HSAs. I would argue, and, and you're right, when, one of the things they did is when they created that bill, the, the natural regulatory instinct kicked in and they said, oh, well, we're going to have to tell you what that means, a, a membership model. And in fact, they put restrictions. They made it so you couldn't af- offer as big a suite of services as most of us already do. They would have actually made sure that if those regulations had gone through as written, we would actually be providing less service than we currently do today, which is is just foolish. We should be competing against each other as doctors to see who can have the best practice and make all the other practices want to follow us. That's a good thing. Doctors should compete with each other, just like every other industry. Um, the, uh, the uh, But in, in general, I, I would actually say when it comes to HSAs, it didn't go far enough. So true, HSAs should be applicable to the membership models of direct primary care so people can get that tax advantage. So now if they're a $40 a month membership, it's $40 minus their tax rate, which right. becomes vanishingly small. Right. Um, but actually, they should also make HSAs applicable to the premium of insurance. 
And the reason why is our entire system right now is built up with employer-based insurance products. And the only reason your job may offer you insurance is because it's cheaper. There's a tax advantage. They don't pay tax on those dollars that they buy your insurance with. However, if you got that as wages instead and you went out and bought it, you're paying it after you've paid taxes. So functionally, it's more expensive. So if they allow HSAs, which are pre-tax dollars, to be used to purchase insurance products, you've just made it exactly the same, essentially. In one swoop, you've made it totally unnecessary for employers to be involved in something they really don't want to be involved in, and that's your health care. Absolutely. I mean, even as a, as a physician practice, right, as an owner of yeah. a business, right, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult and, 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 and uh, painful thing to, to have to deal with. But, yeah, you would then level the playing field, right, between the individual market and, and, and the employer market so that it, you know, there, it's, it's the same across both, across both, uh, both spectrums. And so, for absolutely. anyone listening to this who's a patient who, or a person who's employed and gets their money, their insurance from their employer – they should love this idea because that means their employer, if they're spending $15,000 on your insurance product, could with no harm to themselves give you a $15,000 raise and allow you to control those funds instead and buy what you want and get a much better price and much better service accountable to you, not to someone else. And even if they dollar for dollar gave you every penny that they spend on the insurance policy, your employer would also be better off. And the reason why is their cost of running their business would go down. Because they now need fewer HR staff, which they're probably not going to like that idea, but you know, fewer staff to administer these insurance products, um, so they would actually save money by decreasing their cost of operation. Absolutely. No, it makes perfect sense to me. That's one of the major problems is this unlevel playing field between pre-tax dollars through employers and everyone else having to pay post-tax. But, uh, yeah, my impression of the bill was the same, which is that my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, was as a DPC doc, you could diagnose the sprained angle, but you couldn't put the splint on it. Yes, yes. Oh, that's a great way of right? saying it. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. so what's the point, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It's like those commercials that say, we're only monitoring your credit, we're not fixing it. Or something. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you have a commercial says, yeah, for that. you've got a cavity, all right. Yeah, and walks out of the room. And walks <laughs> out of the room, right? I mean, that would, would, would it force your direct primary care physician to go, I'll be darned, that's a sprained ankle. What are you going to do about it? I can't do anything about it because yeah. the law says I can't. So yeah, the, that would have been a disaster. My impression is they got rid of that in the version. I, I, I hope so. And that's, a, that's, I understand, I haven't seen the more recent versions, but I guess there's a Senate bill, that a version that apparently is cleaning things up. But again, I haven't reviewed it. This is called all just um, what I'm hearing. Right. Um, the, the one thing that's funny, too, is people listen to us talk about the specific policy. I wouldn't be surprised if many eyes are glassing over or they're getting tempted to turn the channel. I'd recommend they don't. The only reason any of this sounds complex is because what currently exists is complex. We're explaining how you get rid of the complex system and how it, f- it fills in all those gaps. What we're actually proposing going to is insanely simple, inexpensive Indeed. coverage, and you pay your doctor with the savings that you got be- because you got the inexpensive coverage, and that doctor's now accountable to you. That's actually quite simple. Well, it reduces the role of insurance to what insurance is supposed to be, yep. what, what it is for car insurance and life insurance and homeowners insurance where claims are expensive, but extremely rare. Mm-hmm. And yep. once you shrink the role of insurance, you gain a whole lot of flexibility on both sides of that equation. And it, it's interesting. In my talk, one of the things I talk about are the fallacy of high prices, meaning that none of the prices are anywhere what the, they're reported to be. But I would argue just as strong of a fallacy is the fallacy that medical care would actually ever be free because you actually get that claim. Well, if it's paid by Medicare, it's free. Well, that's not true. Who paid for Medicare? The taxpayer did. 
So all you're doing is obscuring that payment in higher taxes. So that you know, so you're hiding the payment. You're hiding. You're still paying for your medical care, whether you know it or not. You're Absolutely. just paying it in taxes instead of um, recognizing it when you go to your doctor and hand them some cash. Um, and and the difference is because it's hidden, you don't actually know what you're getting. And I don't know about your listeners, but I kind of like to know what I'm paying for. Well, absolutely. And and it, 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 without that, knowing what you're paying for and paying for it yourself, there's no incentive to shop. There's no incentive right. for price competition. All of those incentives completely disappear. And, you know, if we, you know, the, the, these folks pushing the single-payer Medicare for all thing would be the absolute worst of every part of this kind of third-payer universe, and we would end up with something that looks like the VA. Yeah, and it's funny to me, too, because I always talk to people who are single-party proponents or Medicare proponents, and when you talk to them, you can clearly see that in their mind when they envision a single-party payer system. What they're envisioning is a governmental system. That will- okay, coming up on the end of the segment, we'll pick it up on the other side. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Dr. Mike Karuchek, your host at your service this week, continuing our presentation of interviews from our Orlando meeting last November. We just got through hearing Dr. Chad Savage. Uh, next up is Dr. Josh Umber. This will cover two segments. We'll break in 13 minutes and then pick it up on the other side. Here we go. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. We are live on location in Orlando, Florida at our third annual Doctor Patient Care Foundation, DPC 3.0. Y3.0, it's our third year. Uh, the energy continues to rise. The attendance continues to rise. And we've brought the entire studio from Atlanta down to Florida. Uh, and we continue to enjoy great guests and great conversations. So I have none other than... Josh Umber here, who is definitely no stranger to the microphone, and if you've been following this at all over the last few years, uh, that he has been the, the vanguard of the, of the direct primary care movement, and um, he's got some very interesting stories to tell if you listen to, to national talk radio at all. He and Dr. Gross have been on Hannity for a while, Josh, you especially, a long time. Yep. Going back uh, 2012. To 2012. Uh, and so uh, I think the story we would love to hear from you is, is you know, your, your perspective on this universe going from, you know, preaching on street corners to being on national syndicated talk radio. So do tell. You know, it is. It's kind of funny. Uh, even as far back as medical school, I was talking about doing an insurance-free model and, and everyone thinks you're crazy or you, they're just trying to get through med school and then residency. Um, and then we did it. 
but then they were just as shocked that we were open a year later and then added a dock and then three docks. Um, and now the movement is, is really taking off. So you're, you feel like you were preaching to uh, empty street corners and now um, you know, this huge volume uh, of receptive members of the community, doctors, patients, companies, uh, Hannity, Sean Hannity, it's, it's fantastic. And I think it's just the value of the message. It's very simple that we can take the complex and make it easy. We can take the expensive and make it affordable. And uh, that's attracting and, and interesting and, and viral for a lot of people. I mean, how did you end up getting the attention of, of nationally syndicated people? I mean, you know, you can have ideas, you can be brilliant, but be undiscovered. So uh, what, was the, what was the breaking point? What was the tipping point where all of a sudden this thing acquired a life of its own and we didn't have to keep pushing to keep it alive? Um, I think the value, I'll, I'll beat that drum all the time. We had such a unique value that inherently it created its own gravity that eventually led to great things. Uh, but I have to give credit to my partner, Dr. Doug, and, and co-founder. Uh, he was part of an AAFP article that they did on direct care. A couple weeks later, CNN Money picked that up, and then Drudge Report picked that up, and then Breitbart, and then Fox News, uh, he was on uh, the Varney Business Report and, and Huckabee, and I got on Hannity. And so um, uh, you know, it, just, it was a really interesting story about doctors innovating that got picked up by national media in a ton of different ways, um, and then that led us to, to Sean Hannity. And then how does it how do you sell them? I mean they're they're all over the place. They are talking about healthcare, but they hear, hear so many other different perspectives and you know, he's he's talking to nationally known people, Newt, etc. I mean it, it's it's what happens to, to suddenly sell these folks so that now you know they're obsessed with you. Um Healthcare is a little bit like talking about your taxes. Nobody wants to do it. So the fact that direct primary care makes it an interesting topic, it's sound biteable, it's it's so unique, it draws your interest in. Something 95% cheaper seems too good to be true, you tune into that. Um, and then it's fixing all these problems that people are having in a common sense way. And they say, yeah, I hate waiting at the doctor's office. You're telling me there's, there's no way I can just call them, I can text them. I can email them. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for in Amazon Prime. It's what I'm looking for in any other service I use. Value, simplicity, um, quality. And uh, and now they can turn a boring insurance, deductible, copay, uh, legalese type conversation into something that the average American just can grasp and get and appreciate. So um, now it, it, it sells papers. It's it's still it's still mind blowing to me. I mean, there's there's a gazillion people out there who who think they have the answer, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I get these emails occasionally from people who go, "I've got it. This is the answer. Please, 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 talk about my book. Talk about me on the radio. Blah 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 blah." And 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 somehow, you know, and and I think it takes more than the strength of the idea. Sure. Uh, you know, because it, it's and and I don't know why I feel that way, but there's just I mean, I'm just I'm so grateful that that all of a sudden you know you guys are our household words 
and, and all of a sudden, you know, and, and now they're talking about direct primary care and congressional hearings, and they're yeah. drafting bills with that are maybe good and maybe not. But I think it's the strength of the idea, but the volume of it has increased too. You know, we can't mention the success of direct care without talking to the countless hours spent by other doctors working in their community, making it successful. And so now it was one good idea and one voice uh, that's hard to, to make it loud enough to reach the national conversation. Now it's hard to find a city without a direct care doctor uh, that is talking to businesses. And my Google alert feed for direct care shows a new article every day. Uh, and we're getting attention from insurance and employer groups and uh, human resource journal uh, industry articles. So uh, it's a it's a collective. So you're at, you're at the at the bow of the ship, right? I mean, you're you're riding the bow wave. Uh, you know, I mean, what should what should you do next? What should what should D- DPC do next? Now that we've kind of reached this level, what do you what do you think has to happen next? I think this is our race to lose in direct care. Um, the things that got us here and made us successful and made us interesting and valuable are the commitment we have to patients first, high value, innovation, simplicity. And the bigger this gets, the more people kind of come at it from the sides and say, well, uh, do our thing also or do ghost claims to show your value or you really need to provide data to the insurance company to justify what you're doing. The data I provide is that I get a thousand pills for four dollars and ninety cents. I don't need to provide any other value. Um, we are affordable. We're good. And if we start to change the recipe that's made this so attractive, it's going to spoil the brand. And and you know we could really start to backslide if we let too many middlemen in. Middlemen who want to, well, we'll sell this to that large employer group and then take a 30% cut of the fees in the middle, which is fee splitting and illegal in most states, um, and then give it to the doctor at 50. Well, if the company will like it at 80, they're going to love it at 50. You know, so we, do, we want to avoid that easy kind of backslide into more middlemen. Keep it pure, keep it simple, keep it independent. Um, if all politics are local, all healthcare is even more local. And I think if direct care sticks to the, the core tenets of a successful model, then uh, it will just continue to thrive and be probably the status quo uh, in you know, the next three to five years. And uh, how do you see government trying to interfere in this? Yeah. You know, right, we got, we got the Medicare for All group. We've got, uh, you know, folks that have, have created an HSA bill that has passed the House, which... You know, could be death by a thousand cuts. Yes. Um, what do you think about all that? You know, uh, um, no one has that government tiger by the tail, but you want to think you do. And you know, HR 365 went from two sentences of just bliss: we're not insurance, and we are an HSA ex- uh, approved expense, to a document that was ballooned up and and altered in so many ways it wasn't recognizable, included CPT codings, caps on physicians, historic things that have never been done because it went through a Ways and Means Committee, so they thought it was expensive because of the tax savings for HSAs, and it was just just bastardized. So I think um, what we want is probably less government intervention. It's good at the state level to get some legislation to say we're not health insurance, but now that, with over 25 states saying that, um, I think we have a pretty clear path there. And uh, we can probably avoid trying to get more government involvement 
Now, every time the government tries to fix health care specifically, it makes it better for direct primary care. Agreed. The Affordable Care Act, um, good intentions and, and, and bad execution uh, means that care went up, it was hard to get, and expensive, yada, yada, all the things that direct care fixes. So if we stay independent and run our race, I, I think the rest of the system will have to adjust to us than the other way around. So game's ours to win or lose. Yep. And it's really a matter of keeping your eye on the ball yep. and, and keep going straight ahead, stay in your lane and not get distracted by all the other parts of the system that want to co-opt uh, and, and adopt the model and, 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 and pollute it or right. degrade it. You know, if you didn't wash your baseball jersey all year long, you don't wash it right before the, the World Series. You know, whatever's lucky and works, you just keep doing it. <laughs> okay. Uh, you so. you one-up my baseball metaphor. That's perfect. <laughs> if we, your jersey's been dirty all year, don't mess with it. You don't wash it right before the big game. Dance with uh, the girl that brung you. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> and now Dr. Hal is trying to throw Josh off his game here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, Hal, you can come sit down if you want. Come on, man. Join the party. We got co-host Dr. Hal Schurz here. We're going to bring him into the middle chair and let him put his two cents in. And there you are. Thank you, Mike. Josh? Pleasure having you. I don't know what you said. Back on your own show? <laughs> I don't know yeah. what you've said up until now. Uh, well, we've. I just kind of let Josh say what was on his mind. And, and we also <laughs> talked about kind of you know, he's riding this bow wave going from, you know, preaching on street corners about direct primary care to having uh, a, a national syndicated radio talk show host obsessed with you in your model and, you know, how did you get from point A to point B kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Well, you know, Josh, you know, you've, you've been one of the pioneers in this movement and... Uh, it's, it's gone from just a few practices to many practices. It's gone to a EMR product, which I don't know if you've even gotten to we, talk about. I, I have. We'll talk about that offline, but yes. <laughs> and which is, which is really, you know, um, what an electronic medical record should be about taking care of patients instead of, of <coughs> billing and insurance companies. We've, you've... You've been involved in the in the political battles. You've been involved in the PR battles. What do you see coming down the pike? What do you think are the, the next areas that you need to be focusing on besides taking care of patients every day? I think it's growing the, the pure model. I like the, you know, dance with yeah. the girl you came with. You. Yeah. Yeah. Is uh, we need to, it, as it continues to grow, have that um, very specific focus of looking back on what made it successful and, and being true to that. Uh, I love the book, Never Split the Difference, because if the more we try to have multiple masters, I'm like, okay, we'll do DPC, but plus a little bit of government manipulation, or plus a little bit of uh, middleman manipulation, it, it starts to devalue the whole thing. And so even though there's a lot of different pizza recipes and each direct care doctor can have quite a bit of variation in what makes them unique and special and successful, I think there's some, some buffer on either, either end that are key and critical to a successful practice. Uh, so how, how do you control a movement as it grows and allow it to innovate? I think that's probably... The, the billion dollar question. That's the secret for, sauce. Yeah, of any industry, of any new thing, is how do you let Uber or Airbnb grow and not lose the thing that made it fun in the first place? Uh, and some companies can do that, and some companies can't. 
Oops, accidentally missed the station break by a few seconds. We'll see you on the other side. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio segment four. We'll pick up on the interview with Josh Umber. As you've seen by now, Dr. Hal joined us, which was kind of cool. So here we go, pick that up. David, I'll apologize to you right now. We'll, this, the last segment ran 30 seconds long, so we'll make this one 30 seconds short and make the hour right. Here we go. And learn by all the new people. So I, I think it's critical that this movement continues to be so well integrated between the new doctors and the old doctors and constantly teaching, constantly learning, but still focused on what works. Which, which brings me to the next question that I wanted to ask. It's a great segue. You know, one of the problems with direct primary, or not direct, with primary care, pre-direct primary care, was the, um, the fact that doctors were hurting. They were not able to, um, you know, even cover their overhead in many cases. Many people didn't take salaries some months. And direct primary care has been an, a solution to that problem. It has solved the economic issues that have plagued direct, uh, primary care doctors for a generation. Yeah. So I know that this is now... I've listened to you, I've listened to Lee, I've listened to Ryan and Chad, I've listened to all the the leaders, that this is the lifeline for primary care. This is the, the cure. This is what's going to keep primary care alive. Do you see in, in the medical school um, world, the medical students, that they are, that more of them are going into primary care? I think... Uh there's a good book, uh, Drive, by David Pink, and um, and some others along the same topic of, of what matters and what drives us and motivates us. And it's, it's not just the job, it's the passion and the purpose. And students can be passionate about medicine, but want to go into other aspects of it because the purpose is good or the lifestyle is good, um, but it's hard to be have drive and passion for something that they typically see as a burden. Okay, everything you just said is true. You're going to love medicine, but you're not going to be able to cover your bills or take a paycheck, and and they just can't knowingly choose that path. But if they're exposed to direct primary care physicians who are passionate about their purpose of patient care, it's just it's an avalanche of support. This is what I want to do. Yeah, I could like radiology, and, and I can probably do a little bit more of that if I want to, 
but I can do home visits and I can do procedures and I can just sit for 30 minutes and talk with the patient, even if it's not a medical thing. You just needed a shoulder to cry on or an ear to listen. You know, that is the, the, the heart of medicine that a lot of us got into. And now they see that again. It's live. It's functional. It's sustainable. And arguably it's better financially than the status quo. It, it has its own gravity. It pulls them into that, uh, which makes you know direct primary care, primary care in general, the, the next big specialty to be a part of. Well, you know, 18% of people in medical school today will never take care of a patient. They're either going 18%, 18%, almost one out of five, will not take care of a patient. They'll work for an insurance company or they'll go into corporate medicine or they'll do a startup. They'll be entrepreneurial. And that's a tremendous change in our lifetime. Speaks to the fact that patient care isn't the most you know, uh, beneficial direction to take. Is that right. A right. lot of, if you can, do something else. So this is, not, this is not only a lifeline for primary care for the specialty, but I think that it is a, it, it, it provides an opportunity for people who are in medical school that before might have not been the most practical for them with a two to four hundred thousand dollar debt burden yeah. and uh, other other you know the, the prospect of not being able to to make a living. Well, well it's, it's two parts, right? I mean, it's it's not only uh, primary care competing with non clinical things; it's primary care competing with specialties yeah. as well. And so that's why the number of people going into primary care has dwindled. Mm-hmm. Now, with direct primary care, how that's the lifeline, right? Now, yeah. all of a sudden, it might actually be attractive well, to be a primary doctor again. And I like the lifeline analogy because I think we're seeing a more direct specialty care because we're, we're 10 years farther into this, and the specialists are seeing in, in an insurance-based model what primary care docs saw 10 years ago of increasing regulation, paperwork, and before, they were the lifeline. Well, I won't do this. I'll do you know ER or anesthesiology or something else, and now those are just as stressful and just as squeezed as everything else. So to show direct primary care gets you back in front of patients in a profitable, sustainable way, in a in a rewarding way for your passion. It's gratifying. Yeah. You actually get to touch patients and be a doctor. Yeah. And and isn't built on um, the hopes of an idea or macro or MIPS or the next thing coming. The the momentum of the current model is just bad to worse. Uh, And they see the simplicity of direct care. It, It mirrors all of the tech things that they've seen in their life. TV's gotten simpler. Music has gotten simpler. Shopping online, getting cars. You don't even have to own a car. You can just zip car around, you know? And so they want, um, uh, it was either Peter Thiel or uh, Peter Diamond said, you can't predict what will change, uh, but you can predict what won't change. And people will always want a better product at a better price, faster and easier. And I think that's true for a profession. They'll want a a more rewarding profession, uh, personally, financially, time-wise, uh, with less headache, less hassle, less paperwork. And, and that's it. Direct care is the simple, new, sustainable model. Makes sense to me. So you've been incredibly, you know, upbeat and and just, you know, a real cheerleader for this movement. Tell, tell us what frustrates you. 
the, the most frustrating thing is that as it grows is the negative gravity it's creating from people who want to do the new thing in the old way is, okay, we ran a hospital, we'll take this direct care name and kind of you know, convert, pervert it like a Xerox or a Google into just a generic terminology. And um, now we're going to do direct care with 2,000 patients and a doc and three or four health coaches that are MA trained um, and, and kind of turn a very uh, artesian one-on-one hand-carved, hand-built type product and try to stamp it out in a factory. Mass, pr- mass produce it. Right. Like, okay, how can we get a 3 to 5x return from investors in 3 to 5 years and just blow this up into, you know, a thousand clinics? And it, it hasn't worked yet. And, and there's a small but growing graveyard of companies who have tried to do that and doctors and patients suffer when they do. So, um, the, the more that we can uh, uh, focus on the pure things. We, we want more vendors like the, the diabetic vendor that gets supplies you know, for 50% less. Amazing. We want um, the Rubicons to do electronic consulting to essentially bring that cost almost to zero for patients. Uh, but we don't want the middlemen that are trying to resell the service to co- companies or the groups that say, well, but if the government just supported this a little bit more, then we could have our cake and someone else's cake. So it, it is grow and accept and adapt, but stay you know, pure to your origins. Um, and, uh, and everybody sees dollar signs in their eyes on the backs of physicians, and that's probably what bothers me. That's Google, Facebook, uh-huh. Uber. Yes, exactly. And they've all struggled with it. I mean, you know, Google now spends more on uh, fighting intellectual property lawsuits than they spend on their own in-house development because they've just gotten so big. Um, so that's why they have to – they depend on a thriving startup culture society that will create new products that can move quicker, faster, leaner than Google, you know, Googleplex can um, and, and Facebook to a, the same degree. So we have to figure out how to grow and, and be bigger – but maintain a, you know, if we, the customer is very fickle in that sense. They want value. That's that's their, you know, benchmark. That's their, their test. And if we start diluting that value, they're going to dilute their passion and, and dedication to the model. So we can never lose track of that. When Starbucks lost focus on their consumer and their product and their experience, they, they lost consumers. Um, and... You know, it's, it's hard to look forward and look backward. That is the very technical thing about an, a new model. There's, there's, it's a truism that yeah. change is always coming. Yes. The potential curse of success. It is. You know, yeah. you have to be careful. And yeah, we, can, we can hurt the whole thing if we do it wrong. All right. Well, great chat. Thank you. Here in the Docs for Patient Care Studios in the Doctor's Lounge with special guest Dr. Josh Umber. Thank you for letting me in. Absolutely. <laughs> and co-host Dr. Hal Schertz, who we will definitely see more of here in the coming hours. Good deal. Thanks, gentlemen. All right. So uh, there you go. So I, I want to bring some emphasis to one part of Umber's interview there, and it's at the end when maybe your attention was flagging a little bit, and, and I just picked it up listening to it for the second or third time. But um, 
there's a very important take-home lesson here in terms of the future of direct primary care. Um, as it gains momentum uh, and as it attracts attention uh, of, of the healthcare industry overall, you're going to see, and, and this is what Josh says, and I think he's spot on absolutely right, is that you're going to see um, other parts of the system, you know, other sort of corporate interests looking to direct primary care as a way to, to again, make profits off health care without adding value. Um, they will seek to conglomerate practices together, you know, add the specialty care as sort of an, an aggregated service with a middleman, like Josh was saying. And um, it is going to be the challenge of DPC going forward to avoid those temptations because there'll they'll be dollar signs in everybody's eyes and they'll, they'll bring lots of money to the table as an upfront investment uh, and, and promise that it's going to be good for the model when, in fact, uh, you know, there's a good chance that it's not good for the model. And, uh, and, and the, so that poses a hazard. There are stories, uh, I know of one in particular out on the West Coast of DPC practices that have failed, uh, either because of too much corporate involvement or too much government involvement. That's the other problem, is that if, if government gets behind this too much, uh, and then they start to impose their own restrictions and requirements on how care is delivered because now their dollars are involved, which gives them the authority to make demands, uh, that things will start to fail along those lines. So very important take-home lesson there uh, and one that uh, everyone would be well advised to remember. Uh, so we've got about 30 seconds left. I uh, just want to make a, a couple of uh, comments. Um, we're going to be uh, making some uh, some changes to um, – uh, the format of how I do my shows in the future. We're going to add, like I was saying at the top of the hour, um, some other segments. Just give it some thought and maybe uh, give me your thoughts through the website uh, on on how we do opening segments uh, and and if you like the idea of a book club uh, type format. Anyhow, we're done. I promised we'd finish early for David. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.